Thank you very much. It's rare these days I show my face in public. Um, my real name is Penny and I am very much an alcoholic. Uh, my professional name uh, is Person Irresponsible, which probably just about qualifies me as an alcoholic without actually having to, to go into any further detail. And uh, as, as Zoe, my wonderful friend, has pointed out, um, in 2020, I, I was one of the very few people who had a great 2020. Um, and that was partly because I was sort of fat, 40 something in my fourth year of recovery. And I don't know if this is a no swear meeting, but I was I was also something else beginning with EFT. And, uh, and I happened to find myself standing at the Mexican border with the intention of walking in a good northerly direction uh, towards Canada. And I had absolutely not a clue why I was there beyond the fact that I was there and I had arranged myself an American visa for my accent. I'm sure you realize I'm not American. Um, I'm actually from Saudi Arabia, I joke. Um, but uh, I'm actually from the UK, but I'm, um, yeah, I, I was there on the Mexican border thinking, what the bloody hell am I doing here? You know, I am not someone who enjoys the great outdoors. Occasionally, Zoe asked me to walk her dogs with her, and with some trepidation, I agree, um, as long as it's a short walk. And uh, so, you know, so I, I, I just, but it just seemed like the next right thing to do. It just seemed like an amazing opportunity. And every single obstacle that should have been put in my way was instantaneously removed. And, uh, and I just thought, what the hell, you know, and none of us knew there was a pandemic on the horizon. There was a small amount of rumblings um, when, when I just got to America, you know, I, I'd whipped in just before the, the travel ban had started up. And, uh, and then of course, we all know that the, the world went to hell in a handcart. And, you know, it, it's interesting now looking back how, how many of us are, you know, how brilliant Zoom has been and how, you know, all the Zoom babies that are turning up at in-person meetings now and the fact that we have a choice um, whether to continue our, you know, our recovery programs online or in person. Um, and I love it. I'm not going to get into the debate of which one is better because, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, I sponsor women now and some of them have young children. So Zoom means that they can get to a lot more meetings than previously they could. So I, I'm... I'm a big fan of Zoom, but also the main thing that Zoom did for me was, you know, when I sort of told my sponsor I was going to go and walk across America and, and, and half an hour later when he was able to catch his breath, uh, he said, you know, what, what are your fears? And he said, go away, write about your fears, because, you know, we are fear-based people and, um, and think about, you know, how you're going to handle your fear and top of my list of things to be frightened of well above the rattlesnakes and well above the bears and well above the coyotes and well above all the axe murderers that you expect to find on this trip mm -hmm. um, was how am I going to cope without AA? And because I'd come into AA in 2016, I'd come in on March the 17th and, uh, and that was really significant to me because it was um, one year since I'd got divorced and, and I hadn't wanted to get divorced. Uh, I'd found the whole thing brutal and heartbreaking. I, was, I had a lot of anger um, of course, and, uh, and I had an ex-husband I'd happily murder. Uh, I only partially joke. And, um, and I was in a really bad way. Emotionally, I was in a really bad way. And I was convinced that he had made me alcoholic. Absolutely, of course it was his fault. Everything was his fault. And, um, and, and, and basically him leaving, it had been very abrupt, you know, two years before, had undoubtedly accelerated what was already a problem and, it, and, it, and, and the event had fast forwarded me into new levels of drinking 
more frequent drinking, greater amounts of drinking. But it was only once I'd started working the program and started working on step one that I suddenly realized, actually, my drinking was a little bit skewy right from the get-go. And it took the best part of a year for me to dismantle all of my beliefs around alcohol, that in any way, shape or form, my drinking had ever been okay or normal. It hadn't. My, my drinking had always been about changing how I felt. And, and I could never have articulated any of this until I got into recovery. And, uh, and it was only in recovery that I learned that I am just always kind of one beat behind the melody. You know, it just seems like the world out there knows how to live in harmony. And I somehow, I'm not even the triangle at the end of the orchestra. You know, I'm just not even in the orchestra. Uh, and I really want to be in the orchestra, but I'm not, I'm not, nobody wants me and everybody hates me and it's all about me. And, uh, and so, you know, I came to realize that one, alcohol once upon a time may well have been fun. It may, may well have been a medicine. It certainly was a treatment for my perennial insecurities. Um, and it really had turned now. And, um, and I just didn't know anything, you know, and, and we're in the Christmas period. And, uh, and I don't know about in, in all the countries that you guys reside in, but certainly here, it's like every second TV advert right now is, is an alcohol related advert. And it promises us that alcohol will make us sexier, more sophisticated and smarter. Well, in my opinion and my experience is what by the end of my drinking, what alcohol did for me was I'd start off with that first glass of red wine because red wine seemed to feel stronger than, um, sorry, I'm just trying to multitask. <laughs> um, so I, I really wanted that hit quickly. So I'd have that first glass of red wine and it would go in fairly slowly, but the next one would go in a bit faster and the next one would go in faster still. And by the end of the night, I'm sitting on the shitter, I'm drinking wine from the bottle and it's coming out the other end, just slightly lumpier. Now, if that is not smart, sexy and sophisticated, I don't know what's wrong with you people, but it certainly, to my idea, was a great party of one. Until the next day, of course, and then I'm, I'm, I'm hating myself and I, and I don't know what I've done. And the other thing that I knew I used to do at some point, but rarely remembered, was if you were wrong on the internet, I was going to find you and tell you. And so therefore I was one of those keyboard warrior wankers that you meet on forums that think they're being funny, but are actually just being rude and obnoxious and awful. And in real life, I mean, Zoe may beg to differ, but I'm not that bad a person, <laughs> but putting a drink in me, I am just a total twat. And, um, and I really regret that now, you know, because it's, is not behavior to be proud of, but that's what drink does to me. And, and it's, um, you know, and I've had to learn to deal with that through the program. So that, yeah, hopefully that explains how my drinking was for you. And like I say, most of my, if I look back, I was, it's ironic because now I'm in recovery, I don't mind being in groups and I don't mind being around people and I'm reasonably sociable up until a point. But in my drinking years, I always felt uncomfortable around groups of people. And so if those were drinking events, I was always watching how much I drank and I was always being mindful of how much I was taking in. And it was only once I'd sort of got into recovery and got into AA that I heard the phrase, if I'm controlling my drinking, I'm not enjoying it. And if I'm enjoying my drinking, I'm sure not controlling it. And that totally summed up how I drank. And um, and so now, you know, so back then, you know, even in my early 20s, which is when I really sort of probably 
found my style of drinking. It was on a Friday night, I could shut my front door and I lived in a flat, so I'd go upstairs. I had my one bottle of white Grenache, Ernest and Julio, and I felt so grown up and sophisticated. And within a few weeks after discovering this, you know, fruity goodness, um, I suddenly realized I was getting to the end of the bottle and I was just wanting a bit more. It just wasn't quite cutting that mustard. And, um, and then coincidentally, a chef had told me that if you put pink wine into a tomato-based sauce, it gives it real zing. <laughs> so I ate a lot of tomato-based sauces for quite some time because that justified me buying one bottle of wine for me and one bottle of wine for the pot. Of course, one glass goes into the pot and, and the rest of it finishes me off. And very quickly, I go from Friday nights to Friday nights and Saturday nights. And because I'm in my early 20s and I am the epitome of health and desirability, I don't get great hangovers. You know, fast forward, and it, it took me it took the best part of three years to put this, this together, it shows you how smart I am. I could not understand why my hangovers got so horrific until somebody pointed out, yeah, but the amount I drank changed over the years as well. And I have come to learn that what makes me an alcoholic is not about how much I drink, but what happens when I drink. And for me, what happens is I get thirstier. My drinking goes in faster and faster. And like I say, I end up on the loo. And, um, and you know, and I, I just, I can never get enough. I'm always, always wanting a bit more. And I, and I heard brilliantly at a meeting, somebody explain how they'd interpret it. And they said, if I won a prize and that prize was three months worth of whatever favorite alcohol, I would already be worrying about three months in a day. What am I going to do about them? And it's like, yeah, that's exactly how I was because it was just never enough. And, um, and that's what makes me an alcoholic. And it took me, I'm sad to say, I wish I'd got it straight away. I'm glad to say I was really, really smart about this, but I wasn't. I've been to university three times. I've never felt more stupid in my life until I learned about alcoholism because everything I believed and everything I'd been told was not true. And I had to unlearn it and, re and restart thinking about it differently. And that's partly a consequence of growing up in an alcoholic home as well is that, that I believed what I was told and what I was told was, was completely fallible, I'm afraid. Um, so I came into AA, I was, like I said, emotionally absolutely broken. The reason I came into AA was, and I'd rung the helpline and, and God bless anyone that does service on the helpline because, and I have, I have done it as part of, you know, giving back. Um, it, it's the loneliest phone call you'll ever make and the best phone call you'll ever make at the same time. And, I, and I've since, you know, taken a lot of those phone calls where you can just hear the pain and the despair. And of course, my memory forgets about pain and despair. Um, so I can't remember exactly how I must have sounded, but I certainly knew I was broken. And I remember telling this woman all about how horrendous my life was. And if she had my life, you know, she'd drink too. And, I, and she said, look, go to a meeting. Just go to a meeting. And, uh, and just take it from there. Will you go to a meeting? And I said, yeah, I'll go to one of your stupid meetings. And, um, and she said, do you want to ride to the meeting? And I said, okay. Uh, and then she said, where do you live? And I said, Scotland, Edinburgh. And she said, well, I'm not giving you a bloody lift. I live in Maidstone, Kent, uh, which is the opposite end of the UK. Um, so I made my own way to the meeting on the Sunday night. And, uh, and I'd love to tell you that I hung on every single word they said. But if anyone's familiar with the Scottish accent, and I haven't got one, I could barely detect words in English, uh, let alone relate in any way, shape or form or identify. I do know there was a man sharing. I do know he talked for about 20, 25 minutes. I do know I didn't fathom a single word of it. And then they went around the room and it was all these men 
Um, all men at this meeting, there was me in absolute bits, crying my heart out, very, very, very ashamed to be there. You know, how did a nice girl like me end up in a place like this? And, uh, and, they, uh, and they all looked at me as they talk. And again, I apologize if anyone here is from Scotland, um, but when Scottish people with a really strong accent speak, nothing sounds like a suggestion. It all sounds like if you don't do it, we're going to kill you. And, uh, and so when somebody said, go to 60 meetings in 60 days or uh, 30 meetings in 30 days, lastly, it was like, oh, okay, fine, you know, thinking I'm never going to darken these doors again. And somebody else, really big fellow, must have weighed about 28 stone, he said, oh, you know, it's the first drink that does the damage, love. And I was like, no, it's about the eighth or ninth. Of course, I'm thinking it. I'm not saying it because I'm not exactly, you know, that brave. And um, and other people just said, you know, it's, it, you know, it, it's a day at a time program, and 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 all you have to do is not drink today. And I remember looking at him, thinking, yeah, but what about the rest of my life? We've got to get this sorted out now. And if you, you know, you just don't understand what mess I'm in. Of course, you know, in my head. The way I was looking at them was, one, they were all batshit crazy, and two, they'd all just been released from prison. Well, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. There were some really well-educated people there, and I just brought all my prejudices to the room. So I had a lot to learn. And like I said, I wasn't really listening because I was crying so hard. Um, and I remember going home the next day, uh, that night, sorry, not the next day, that night, and I remember thinking, blimey, I actually felt a little tiny, wee bit of calm at that meeting. And, and I hadn't felt like that for a good couple of years. And, um, and the next day I woke up and said, blimey, I went to an AA meeting yesterday. And it's exactly like, exactly like it's on the telly, except nobody sits there looking like they're outside the headmaster's office. You know, they actually sat there looking comfortable and they were laughing. And I do remember when they were laughing, being absolutely bloody outraged. You know, don't you bloody bunch of people know you're alcoholics. You should not be laughing. Listen to me. And uh, so I came in with a lot of bad attitude, I have to confess. Um, but I remember the next day thinking, you know what, I can sit here and climb the walls thinking about drinking, or I can go to one of your stupid meetings. So I went to one of your stupid meetings, and, uh, and it was a different meeting. And there was a woman at that meeting, just one, just one woman. And, uh, and she shared, and this is, this is really embarrassing, I still didn't understand a word of what she said, but she made a fabulous cup of tea and she gave me her phone number. And, uh, and I thought that was really weird, to be honest. Uh, and I was really freaked out about this. And I was convinced, you know, because it was in a chapel. All these often AA meetings here are in, in chapels and church halls. And, and I was convinced it was religious. And, uh, and, and I, I'd, been, I'd grown up in a very alienated family, so I didn't have much contact um, with my wider family. But half of them were Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and I had been fostered to them for, for a number of years in my life. Um, and the other half was strict Methodist. And my mother was an evangelical atheist. And I can only tell you, there's only one thing worse than an atheist, and that's an evangelical atheist. We both want to put their view on you, and no one's particularly interested in what you think. And, um, and, and so, so I, I had to deal with this conflict my whole life, because I actually was well-loved and well-looked after by my Jehovah's Witness extended family uh, for the years that I lived with them. But when I went back to my mother, you know, I had to deal with all of that sort of very conflicting, very antagonistic, um, very angry woman that she was. So it, it had left me very, very vulnerable and very, you know, very sceptical and very frightened of what to do here. And so I was convinced it was a cult, as I think many of us are. And, and I remember just saying to myself, whatever happens, Penny, you'll be fine as long as you don't swear. And then thinking, well, that's quite a tall order as well. 
Um, and so, you know, but what I do know is, like I say, this, there was this general sense of cheeriness, this general sense of peace, this general sense of being okay with oneself. And I remember thinking, I've never been like that in my life. And, you know, what's these people's secret? But I, I, I still wasn't listening. But I went back and I went back and I went back. And so I ended up doing 30 meetings in 30 days, which blew the socks off me because I only intended to go for 28 days. That's all I'd wanted to achieve. Because, and again, I don't know about the rest of the world, but we have this bizarre concept in this country called dry January. Now, as far as I'm concerned, it's nuts because everybody knows January has 31 days in it. It's so much easier to do it in February. Why they don't do it in February, I don't know. And, um, and I had tried to do dry February for two consecutive years. And, um, and, and the first year I'd done it for 10 days and I was climbing the walls. Uh, and then I think I'd got a letter from my lawyer. I was in a horrific divorce at the time. And, you know, if you were getting divorced, you would you would drink too. Uh, so I, I postponed my dry February for a year. And the next year I had no excuses. My divorce was over. And I, and I got to day four. And to this day, I can't tell you what happened on day four. But I can tell you that realization was dawning that I just didn't need a reason to drink. I just drank. I drank because I was in a good mood and it made me higher. I drank when I was in a bad mood because it neutralized me. It drank. I drank when I had heartbreak because at least I could cry, swear, scream, or it would numb it. You know, I don't know which way it was going to go, but it was doing something. But it had, you know, I drank because I got, you know, a bill through the post and I had money worries galore by then. And I just couldn't face any more. But mostly I drank because I tripped over the cat. But nine times out of 10, I had to find the flipping cat to trip over it in the first place, you know. And I was starting to get that realization that I just drank. And I never drank before six o'clock because that made you an alcoholic and therefore it was perfectly respectable to drink after six. Uh, I never drank in the mornings. Um, I certainly drank a lot of neat vodka uh, um, and anything else I could get my hands on by the end. So I wasn't fussy about what I drank. I just had all these rules and regulations about what time it was appropriate to drink. I didn't necessarily drink seven nights a week either. And like I say, the hangovers were getting horrific. And so my life had come down to... I was either drinking, thinking about drinking or recovering from the drinking. And that pretty much sums up how my life was. And so, like I say, when I got to these 30 days, I'm thinking, this is bloody amazing. I've done two more days than I anticipated. And so I went to pick up my 30 day chip, get my round of applause, you know, woohoos, hollers, all of that sort of stuff. And then some voice yells out, and now you got a 60 and 60 lassie. I was yeah. like, blimey. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I planned on getting drunk that weekend. So that kind of kiboshed my plans. And um, and I did it. I went to 60 and 60. And I, even to this day, I couldn't explain why I did, just beyond the fact that although my life was no less manageable than it had been before, and no, although I was still absolutely wiped out with depression, anxiety, with stress, uh, with heartbreak and with hurt, um, there was something about AA that just kept pulling me back and pulling me back and pulling me back. And so I picked up my 60 and 60 uh, chip, two months chip, and I got my round of applause and I'm all so proud of myself and that same stupid voice went, and now you do your nasty and nasty. I was, oh, blimey, you know, this is all a bit much. And at the time I'd started to say, you know, I am an alcoholic, not because I believed it, but because I didn't want to hurt your feelings, because I'm so generous like that. And, um, you know, I was so conscious about how you guys feel. And, um, 
and I wasn't really listening, but I do know it was working despite the worst of me and despite the best of me, this damn thing was working. Uh, and on day 72, I got some really bad news. And, um, and, 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 and it really pissed me off because it ruined all of my future plans. I now know that alcoholics are expert planners and we get very resentful when our plans don't go our way. Um, and so of course I did not pick up the phone and tell somebody how I was feeling because I hadn't got my head around how the program works um, beyond attending meetings. And, uh, and, and basically I remember sat there and I'm still in Edinburgh and, and in Scotland, there's a law that says you cannot buy alcohol after 10 o'clock at night. And I, I think it's supposed to help alcoholics. I'm not sure. But anyway, I did not know. I haven't been in Scotland for that long. I think less than a year at that point. And, uh, and I had not, you know, I'd never, I could plan my drinking, but I never needed to drink beyond 10 o'clock because I always had enough in the house. Um, but because I've been going to AI, I didn't have any alcohol in the house. And so I remember sat there thinking, if I can just hold on to my coffee table, until 10 o'clock that night, then I will be fine. I won't need to drink on this catastrophic news and the coffee table will save me. And then by nine o'clock, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to drink on this. I don't want to drink on this. I don't want to drink on this. And besides where am I, you know, I just get to 10 o'clock. So one minute past 10, I'm thinking, well, who the hell can I ring to find out where I can buy booze in Scotland after 10 o'clock? And at that moment, I jumped in my car and drove to England. Now, the opening lines of, of chapter five, as we all know, is if you're willing to go to any lengths. So I was willing to go to any lengths to obtain booze at that time of night. I didn't know anyone, anyone in Scotland to ring to find out where I could illegally buy booze. And the only numbers I had were people in AA and they weren't going to bloody tell me, were they? And I wasn't going to ask them. And so I drove to England to buy alcohol. And as I say, the opening lines are, if you're willing to go to any lengths. And that particular night, I drove backwards and forwards, and we're talking hundreds of miles here, all through the night, being stark raving sober, but desperately wanting to drink, but desperately not wanting to drink. And that is when I probably had my emotional rock bottom. And it was just sheer chaos. That whole night was just frantic loss of control. And, and, um, and like I say, I just drove backwards and forwards. I'd stopped smoking at that point, you know, for seven months. And um, because, you know, you always do. And um, and I ended up buying a packet of 10 cigarettes, which you could still get in the country at the time. And I drove around with them on the front of my car, not daring to smoke because I thought I might crash my car on the cigarettes, you know. <laughs> anyway, about six o'clock in the morning, sorry, four o'clock in the morning, I ended up back in the village outside of Edinburgh where I lived. And I, and I smoked the cigarettes and I was sick. And so you had to smoke another one because you've got to push through these things. You know, that's what alcoholics do, I now know. And uh, we have tenacity, amazing tenacity. And, uh, and then at, at 6 a.m. in the morning, I walked across the road and bought two bottles of wine uh, because, you know, the off license was just there. The, the, the liquor store was just there. Um, and that was my last drink. I still waited till six o'clock. I still spent all day staring at the clocks thinking, why is it not six o'clock yet? Um, which is what I used to do towards the end of my drinking anyway. And at, at six o'clock, I, um, I poured a glass of wine and I tipped it down. And for the first and only time in my life, it did nothing. It did absolutely nothing. It had no impact whatsoever. So to be sure, to be sure, I drink through. I have my second glass of wine. Bear in mind, my glasses are like this. You know, they're buckets. They're not glasses. Um, and it did did nothing. Absolutely nothing. It didn't change how I felt. I had no reaction whatsoever. It was like drinking cat's piss. And for the first time in my life, I can hand on heart say that is the most scared I have ever been. 
uh, because now what do I do? I have no control over my emotions. I can't escape my emotions. And that, that was my last drink. And that was uh, June the 4th, 2016. And, um, and here I am um, all this time later. But March the 17th, I hung on to that date because it was my divorce date, because it was the date I entered AA. And ironically, it was my first full day on trial, uh, on the trail from, from Mexico to Canada. So I was very emotional about that day. And, and part of that, part was because I hadn't really got my head around the program. I held on to that and I told people that, that was my sobriety date for <laughs> until I nearly picked my one year chip. And then finally I came clean that I'd had this other drink. Uh, and that's I probably that's really, you know, that first of all, yeah, I hadn't understood that this is a really safe place to get honest, to become honest, to learn how to tell the truth. I never knew I never knew what a liar, liar, pants on fire I was until I started looking at myself. And um, and I didn't get a sponsor for a while. And then I did get a sponsor. and She was fabulous because she never pushed me too far. She always pushed me slightly outside of my comfort zone, but never beyond where I needed to go or wanted to go or could go and so you know we got to the inevitable god question um and that took quite a long time but in the end i found my own path because I, like i said i didn't have this great sort of um positive christian um background and i still don't and she said listen it's nothing to do with god it's all to do with how your mind works and if you can open your mind and be willing to look at things differently from your initial position you're on your way to recovery and it was like okay this kind of makes sense so should I want you to learn how to do things that are outside your comfort zone and I want you to just learn how to take suggestions and, and learn to try stuff and stop bloody sulking and so for example you know very quickly she learned I did not know how to have fun I didn't know how to chill out I didn't know how to relax so and, and she said to her, I want you to go and have fun for 30 days and I was like well I don't know how you do that um, and I said, what's fun anyway? And she said, well, go and sit in the bath with candles. So, of course, I get in the bath, I cross my arms, and this is fun, is it? You know, and now you can't get me out of the pissing bath. Um, so, but, it, you know, and part of that was, you know, go to church. So I decided, I geared up for a Christmas Day meeting, uh, midnight mass type thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't been to church since I was at boarding school. And we were forced to go to church. So, like I said, there was an awful lot of negativity to, to cut through. And, uh, and I stood and I wanted to go to midnight mass, particularly because I live alone. I'm on my own on this, you know, tragic divorcee figure, midlife crisis, all this going on. And, um, you know, and I even have the cats. I'm such a stereotype. Um, and <laughs> and I stood in this, this stone, old English 17th century church. And I, and I knew there'd be other villagers around that only popped in once a year. So at least I wouldn't feel so old and picked on and, and liable to abduction by these well-meaning church going people. And, uh, and so at the middle of this, this service, the vicar gets up into his pulpit and he starts raging on about how he only sees the villagers once a year. And I was like, there's my message from God. I'm gone. <laughs> and, uh, and that, you know, but it was learning just to be a bit more open minded. And I, you know, and then not long after that, I really did have my sort of massive step three moment in that I was sort of planning to go out. I didn't know I was planning to go out, but I was sort of like I've been sober for over a year or for nearly a year now, I think I was. Um, you know, surely I'll be fine. Surely I've hit the reset button. And, um, you know, and it was like, all I can say, it was a palpable war between good and evil in my head. Whereas there's one set of voices is saying, you'll be fine, it'll be grand. You know, you don't need to be like these losers. And the other part of me was saying, this is the only peace you've ever found in your life. This only sense of comfort you've ever had has come from AA. 
and uh, and you've got this social life now and you've got a friendship group now and you know you you're starting to find your feet again or not even again you're starting to find your feet for the first time in your life and um and then I was like, nah, you know, I, I want to go back to my party of one, my misery. I want it all back. I really do. It'll be different this time. And at that moment, the phone rang and this woman said, you don't know me, but somebody gave me your number and they said they, I could talk to you about drinking. And I can honestly, I just, the, the sheer coincidence of that timing of that phone call. So I talked to her about my drinking. She told me about her drinking. And I said, look, the only thing I can tell you to do is go for a meeting. It's worked for me for you know, nearly a year. And that particular day, I jumped in my car and I drove to a meeting about two hours away. And on the wall, and I'd never seen this laminate anywhere else in my local meetings, it said there are no coincidences in AA. And I remember thinking, I can work with that. If I treat life as if no such thing exists as a coincidence, that is as far and as complicated as I need to make my higher power because it changes how I think, it changes how I feel. If everything is exactly as it should be, then I have to work on learning to accept something and accept and like are not synonymous. And I never knew that. Just because I accept something doesn't mean I have to approve of it. It just means I don't have to let it dominate my day to the extent that it used to. And so that really was my step three, which was that, that sort of massive, like, okay, do you know what? I'm just going to throw myself at AA and see where it takes me. And of course, in 2020, that took me to the Mexican border. I was like, oh, blimey, you know, here I am. And like I say, I am not a health freak. I'm not outdoorsy. In the early days of my marriage, in my early 20s, I had stayed in a tent with my now ex-husband. And I'd woken up in the morning and I'd said to him, if you ever put me in a tent again, I will divorce you. You know, I am just not someone who lives in a tent, darling. Um, and that had been true until he left me and <laughs> here I was and one of my primary reasons for coming to AA was fear of poverty I, I'd been in, in about a quarter of a million pound of debt when I came into AA um, not of my own making it has to be said there was a lot of step work to be done around that and um, you know and, and so I, I just battled for a very long time um, a, a huge amount of, of money worries and um and yeah, and so my fear of poverty and I was, you know, I'm going to end up homeless and I'm going to end up living in a tent with a sleeping bag and, and just a bag full of possessions. And then in 2020, that's exactly how I how I ended up. Um, I'm still trying to multitask. <laughs> so that's exactly how I ended up. And so I ended up, a spoiler alert, I, I ended up succeeding in getting to Canada. And I think less than probably less than 70 people managed it. And bear in mind, on a normal year, uh, pre-pandemic about three and a half thousand people have a crack at, at walking this one particular route it's the pacific crest trail not the pacific coast trail like i told everybody it was mm -hmm. um and uh and, and uh, probably around six seven hundred people actually make it in a normal year but obviously 2020 was not a normal year and uh, and what i realized was you know, very early on, I was very, very intimidated by everybody else. Everybody else seemed so fit and so healthy and knew what they were doing. And they were American. So they, they, they were culturally orientated. And, um, and, and I was not fit or healthy or anything. I, was, I had eaten so much cake by way of training for this um, because I just didn't know what else to do. Um, and, and I live in a country that's particularly, by comparison to America, it's really flat. You know, Ben Neris is 4,000 feet above sea level. And I'm already 4,000 above sea level in a flat portion of the desert. You know, it was just, and I knew I was going up to 13,000 feet and I don't climb mountains, I don't walk, nothing. 
Um, just remember thinking I'm bonkers crazy. But what I really put into practice was everything that the program had ever taught me. It taught me to stop worrying about Canada. If I get to Canada, that's just, you know, I'm going to get to Canada. But between now and Canada, I've got to do it one day at a time. And I'm going to have to deal with my fears one fear at a time. And so I could pray to the God that I don't believe in the whole time about not seeing a rattlesnake. But reality is I'm going to see a rattlesnake, you know, and I did indeed meet many rattlesnakes and I, and I never lost my fear of them. But I learned the difference between healthy fear and unhealthy fear. An unhealthy fear is to say, I'm, you know, I see a rattlesnake and go home. Uh, a, a healthy fear is I see a rattlesnake and I'm just going to hit the pause button for a while whilst it decides what it wants to do. Uh, likewise, you know, big fear of mine was, was meeting bears. And, uh, and I know that, you know, if I want to see a bear in my country, I have to go to a zoo. Um, and so, and that seemed like a very sensible way of encountering a bear, if you ask me. And I'm pretty anti-zoos. I'm a vegetarian, for God's sake. And, um, and, and yet one day I was moseying along and I woke a bear up. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I am terrible at being woken up. You know, I really am quite fierce if, if someone wakes me up. So I looked at this bear looking at me thinking, oh, Lordy, you know. Um, and I remember somewhere deep inside, somebody saying, if you, if you sing really badly, well, that doesn't take much effort for me. Um, the bears hate it and they'll go away. And all I could think to sing under pressure was God save the bloody queen. So I'm pelting out my national anthem in the middle of the wilderness. And the bear just looks at me and ambles off. He couldn't, couldn't care less. And all I could do is thank God for that. You know, there is a God, hallelujah, that's a miracle. And then the next thing, it's like, right, I'm going to, and then the next thing, the second bear comes out. And all I can think is, no bugger told me they live in pairs, you know. And, uh, and that one just ambled off as well. And I live to tell the tale. Um, but I did have to really learn. And like I said, I did end up developing a real in-depth connection to what I now call my higher power. Um, but what my higher power kind of, it gives that illusion that it's up there or outside of me, but it's actually inside of me. And it's this sense of well-being and this sense of it's all going to be okay. And I can tap into that. And so whenever I felt that rising panic, I got lost, which doesn't surprise anyone that knows me. I can get lost in my own living room. But I got lost several times and you know, panic rises up and then I can just say, right, the power of prayer says, stop, be still. And, and there was one time I got myself, I'd walked two and a half miles in completely the wrong direction, which is a horrendous amount of time to squander when you've got to go from Mexico to Canada, which is 2,653 miles. You don't want to do no bonus miles. You really don't. And, uh, and I'm terribly lost. And I remember thinking, well, I'm just going to sit and I'm going to pray. And then I heard voices and they weren't in my head for a change. And there was just a family that was having a day trip by the local pond. And by just sitting and being, it's not that God magicked up this family, but I was just able to calm myself down and calm my mind down to actually hear that it was all going to be fine. And even if I was in trouble, there's a bloody family just over there, even though I'm in the middle of the wilderness. So those are those little tiny skills, those principles behind the steps that really stood me in good, in, in good stead. And I suppose what else did I learn? Um, early on, it was my first real experience. Like I say, my biggest fear was living without AA. Zoom took care of that because it put all my, you know, with a time difference of eight hours. You know, when I went into towns for resupply, I could also actually see my friends on, on the Zoom meetings and see my sponsor and everything else because of the pandemic. So that tackled the homesickness, which I really struggled with. And um and, and, and yeah, so that sort of kept me going. I, and I promised my sponsor that I'd listen to a share every day. So I took a load of pre-recorded shares. 
and I, I and I so I listened to it between one and three shares that I, I downloaded. Um, and a lot of them were sort of made in the 1980s and it, and it really showed and it was I didn't realize like the Pacific group is a, is a sort of branch of sort of AA that has its own sort of very sort of strong belief systems that I don't particularly subscribe to. So I ended up really learning quite a lot about AA and different sort of ways working your way through the steps. And um, so it was a bit like doing a university degree, to be honest, every day. Um, and, and, and but it kept me connected, you know, it kept me reminded and I still got that sense of I heard what I needed to hear that day. But like I say, it was this first time of being away from my AA structure and my AA bubble and my AA support system. And I'm a regular meeting goer. You know, I, I, I've always at least, you know, three or four meetings a week. Like I say, my first year, it was pretty much a meeting a day. Um, and I have a sponsor and I sponsor other people, you know, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty enmeshed in AA. And this was the first time it was like from one extreme to another. Uh, and so you've got to deal with the fact that, you know, are people going to ask you, why don't you drink? Um, and, and, you know, we all have to deal with that to some extent. And I, over the years, have developed sort of two or three ways of handling that. And people say, oh, you don't drink, do you? And it's like I can just smile and look at them and go, no, I'm a raving alcoholic. <laughs> and, because, and they all think I'm hilarious because these days I don't look like a drunk. I've got great hair. My skin's clear. I am got a red face. I don't look like I want to batter you. Um, you know, I just don't, I don't strike people as what they think an alcoholic is. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty much how I handle it. Um, but sometimes I just say I'm allergic to alcohol, in which case I get so much sympathy and I lap that up. Um, but rarely do I actually tell people, oh, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I'm in AA. But I did, for my own protection, I started telling people um, that I was on the trail with. I said, oh, you know, I've had problems with drink and I drank a lifetime's, my lifetime's allowance of alcohol in a very compressed period of time. And I also drank yours, by the way, and yours and, and that person's over there. Um, and so I, I can no longer safely drink. And also, you know, I've got other priorities in life. Um, but I, I, I did join AA. And the thing I learned from AA, amongst many other things, is that had I not joined AA, had I not had this allergy to alcohol, this reaction to alcohol that is peculiar and unusual and doesn't happen to everyone, I'd just be a dysfunctional human being who hasn't got a clue. I said, but because I have this reaction to alcohol that's unusual and peculiar, it means not only do I get to live an alcohol-free life, you know, but also I get to heal as an individual who, who was very traumatized um, in their childhood. Um, I said, so it's the best thing that ever happened to me was being born an alcoholic, albeit not the best thing that ever happened to you, because I'm probably going to piss you off if I drink again. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I started to open up about that with, with people, you know, and I think trail life does that. You know, I do think those kind of expeditions, it strips you away, you know, those masks and those potences that we might put on in the workplace and so on. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I got comfortable sort of talking about my alcoholism because the child does that. I spent 90% of my time at nights alone. You know, it wasn't exactly a social thing. Um, and yeah, so what else did I learn? I think I was about, I learned that actually, you know, I dealt a lot more with that people pleasing and the fact that I feel responsible for people way too much. Uh, and I need to just learn to, to look after my own backyard a little better. Uh, I don't need other people's approval all the time. And that, that was quite a tough thing to learn. And also that, you know, other people need to get on with their own lives. They're not all here to serve me. That mm -hmm. came as a bit of a disappointment too. Um, uh, but the big thing I learned towards the end, I was about 2,500 miles in of this 2,653 mile 
expedition. And somebody asked me a very serious question about through hiking and, and you know living in the wilderness. And my immediate reaction was, well, don't ask me, I know nothing. And she turned around and she said, you know everything. You know everything. You've lived out here for, at that time, about 160 nights. You know it all. And I was like, oh my God, you know. So I really discovered this imposter syndrome that, that, that runs through the core of me, still affects me and, still, and is still really sabotaging how I view myself and how I view the world at large. And, that, and that's still, you know, that's still a character defect that I'm still working on. Um, and then, like I say, I got to Canada. Everybody always thinks it's this monumental experience. Well, there is a monument, so there was a monumental experience. But to be honest, I was that fucking knackered by then. I couldn't have cared less, you know. And I couldn't go into Canada because of, of the restrictions, you know, the COVID restrictions. So I had to turn around and walk 30 miles back. Um, so I was a bit like, you know. But it, it's once I got back to the UK and I, I went into quarantine and I slept for two weeks and I couldn't walk for six months, um, that I had time to actually reflect on, on what I achieved. And what I achieved is only because of AA and it's only because of sobriety. And it's only because of, like I say, learning to rely on a power greater than myself, which resides inside of me, really, which is self-esteem, self-respect, um, that sense of security you know, that I've got to really work on. Um, and also, you know, the things that how I self-sabotage, I've, I've got to really work on those too. And that, that for me is recovery and that for me is the rest of my life. So, of course, I came back and lockdown still going on and I had to learn about this pandemic that everybody's living in. And, uh, and so there was no work. I couldn't find any work. Fortunately, I had enough money left in the bank that I could survive just about financially. Um, I got a beautiful little cottage in, in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and I sat down and I wrote a book about walking across America and, and everything that the 12 steps had taught me because you know, you would not have bet money on me making it to Canada, I'm afraid. I just don't look like somebody who was going to make it to Canada. But then again, I wouldn't have bet money on me sticking and staying with AA. So, you know, we're all in our own way, dark horses, no pun intended. Um, and so I came home, I wrote the book, and, and it's getting great reviews, and here's my book, and I'm very proud of it. So that was my 2021. And, uh, you know, and I got a little driving job, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, and I, and I sit here today, and and I just I still feel like a novice of this AA stuff. I know it's been over five years now, but I still feel very much like a novice. There's so much to learn. There's so much to do. And the worst part about it is that America has more than one long trail. And um, yeah, I just saw that answer in a minute. And so hopefully next year I'm going to go and walk from Canada to Mexico, or as other people say, downhill. Uh, and I'm going to go on a slightly different route. So. Um, so that's hopefully my, my next plan. And, and hopefully I will, you know, I mean, I hated every single second of walking from Mexico to Canada. I say that I didn't, but it was hard. It was really hard. I walked, you know, sometimes a marathon plus a day. Uh, and, and I got really super thin. And then I came back and got really super fat again and fatter than I've ever been in my life. So I kind of got to go back and, and work it all off and hopefully get control of my eating, which I know the 12 step program also works on eating. So um, you never know. So I, I still don't do things in, in moderation. But if you are new to sobriety and you honestly believe that by putting down the drink, your life is going to be boring and dumb and glum, you're wrong. Uh, I thought that. Um, and I no longer believe that my life is, is really interesting and um, and I meet great people along the way and and all I had to do was not drink 
And I used to think that I was deprived, but now I know I am not deprived of anything by, get, by, by not drinking. I gain so much, uh, not least first thing in the morning when I wake up and I actually know who I abused last night. Um, and, I, you know, and, I, and these days, it, it, I just don't abuse people. It's weird how that happens. So I'll wrap it up and just say, if you want to know more about the story, the book is called Everything You Ever Taught Me. And I explain who the you is in the book. And it charts my journey from Mexico to Canada. My author name, as I said, is Person Irresponsible. And, and it's how the 12 steps, me, 12 steps got me through really what was an epic journey that took six months and, and, uh, and made me skinny for a while, which was great. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs>